Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for all the things that you have done, for all the ways that you've revealed yourself to us, God, for all the ways that you always break through to us. And Jesus, I pray that as we're here, that you would speak to each one of us, regardless of where we are in our relationship with you, regardless of where we are in our knowledge of you, regardless if we even think that you're there and if you even exist. God, I pray that for those of us who have been walking with you for a long time now, you would make this morning, you would make your word fresh and relevant to our lives. And I pray for all my friends who are here, who are just kind of on the edge, on the periphery, not really sure, that you would communicate something this morning. And that your word would do what it always does, as a double-edged sword would just cut to the core of who we are. And it's in your name, Jesus, we ask this. Amen. All right, well, we're uh, in our final part of a series this morning. I'm going to get you caught up. Actually, it's a pretty good week uh, if, if you're new. Um, we're in the final part of a series, and the series is called Defining Character. And uh, we, we go through series in different ways. Um, oftentimes, we go through the Bible verse by verse, and then from time to time, uh, we just pick a topical series. This one's kind of a mixture. Um, we're going through the life of a fellow named David. And here's what's good about David. Pretty much everybody has heard of King David. And you might not be the most um, bible uh, efficient person, or really, that's not even a good sentence at all, but you might not be the most biblically well-spoken person in the history of the world, but you've probably heard of David, because you've heard of David and Goliath, or at least you've heard that, you know, analogy, um, when, you know, a great football team plays a bad football team, and, you know, or when Florida State plays anybody, it's just kind of like, you know, we're going to be medium the whole time, but we're going to win, 13-0, shouts out, number 29, we had not even said anything about that yet, let's celebrate that, ACC champs. From 12 to 12.30, we're going to have a prayer service after this, by the way, for the bowl selection committee, just to make sure we're in the top four. Because if you don't, if, if it's not record and it's not, you know, head-to-head, then what's your standard? So anyways, um, <laughs> had nothing to do with the sermon. We're studying, the, we're, we're studying uh, the, the guy, the fella named David. Now, the reason that that's significant, and the reason that we want to spend some time studying David, because David, in the Old Testament, uh, which is all pre-Jesus, essentially, in the Old Testament, was the greatest king the nation of Israel ever had. Now, the nation of Israel was essentially God's chosen people. They were the God squad of the day. And David was the greatest king. They had king after king after king after king after king. And David was the greatest of all the kings. And what we're studying in this, why I felt this was so relevant and so pressing, was, was it's real simple. Because David was a man of incredible character and incredible integrity. And he had, he had some you know, pretty big flaws. And he had some pretty big you know, goof-ups that we've studied. But David was a man after God's own heart. And here's what's interesting. You know people like that. And I know people like that. You know people that they just have such a tremendous amount of integrity and a tremendous amount of character that it inspires you. You're around them. And for some reason, you just want to be like them. You meet with them. Maybe they're your mentor. Maybe they're they're your community group leader. Maybe it's just a person that you know. It's a man or a woman of incredible faith. And you just know that everyone else in the world might talk about Jesus. Everyone else might talk about church. Everyone else might talk about Christianity. But that person lives it. And the reality is, regardless of where you stand in terms of faith, you probably know someone of such incredible a character and such incredible integrity that it inspires you to be like them. And so the, the vision for the entire series is real simple. What if an entire church was like that? What if an entire church was simply known for their integrity and their character? 
How dynamic of a faith family, of a faith community, would it be if an entire church was filled with individual men and women who were just so filled with character and so filled with integrity that when anyone hung out around them, they were inspired by them? How different would that be? How different would that be than the normal church mold? Where people see church people and are turned off from the church and Jesus because of what church people do outside the church. In fact, what if we were more concerned with our holiness outside of church than we were inside of church? That would be incredible. And so we're studying David. We're studying principles. Week one, we talked about when David fought Goliath. Again, you probably heard of that story. And everyone sees the David and Goliath, and they see that it's a big deal, it's a big deal, it's a big deal. I can't believe David won that battle, and that's kind of difficult to believe. But David, in a little you know, kind of subtext to that whole story, says, Hey, king, I'm going to go fight this dude Goliath, and I'm going to win because I'm going to fight on behalf of God. But just so you know, it's not my first fight. In fact, your servant has killed, by the way, with his bare hands, maybe with a club, both a lion and a bear. <laughs> and who is this Philistine? And here's kind of what we said. In terms of your character and your integrity, the battle for your character, the battle for your integrity is almost always won before the battle starts. It's almost always won in the preface to the story, not in the actual story itself. In week two, we talked about when David messed up with Bathsheba. David messed up with Bathsheba. And when he messed up with Bathsheba, the whole thing was foreshadowed again by David was at a time in his life and was at a season in the actual year when kings went off to war and kings would go off to war and kings would go off to war. And when kings went off to war, they were around their men. There was this transparency that the battle would bring out among them. There was this accountability that happened. But David left all of his transparency and all of his accountability out. And here's what we said as a principle. Character is always developed in community. Character is always developed in community. The times when you have the most transparent community is probably the times when your character is the best. Week three. We said, but at some point, you're going to mess up. It's, it's human nature. It's who we are. It's who I am. It's who you are. You're going to mess up. I'm going to mess up. We're all going to mess up. David messed up with Bathsheba, and we compared Saul, who every time he was confronted with his sin, instead of embracing it, avoided it. And you and I have that exact same temptation. We avoid, avoid, avoid confrontation. We avoid, avoid, avoid repentance. We avoid, avoid, avoid any type of a confrontation in our sin. But here's what we said. The godly man, the godly woman of great character and great integrity doesn't avoid repentance, but embraces it. And here's kind of how we said it. From a fellow who told a story and said, man, if there's this guy guy of incredible character, incredible integrity. And he said, if there's any reason why that's the case, it's because God has taken my butt to the woodshed so many times that I just embrace the woodshed. So here's how we say it. Men and women of great integrity and great character embrace the woodshed. We do. You lean into suffering. You lean into repentance when everything inside you wants to lean away. So this morning, I want to talk about the fourth and the final and probably the most critical of all the different character builders. But I want to kind of take you there through a little story that happens. And in fact, this one isn't even really, it's about something that David does. But the person that David does to just resembles so much of who we are. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to 2 Samuel. We're going to be in, in chapter 9 this morning. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 9, let me, let me paint a little picture for what's happening because there's going to be some, some context that's going to be relevant to this story. So 2 Samuel chapter 9, 
is a story about David and this guy named Mephibosheth. Now, with Mephibosheth, that's kind of a, a, a tongue twister. So if I screwed, messed that up all morning, then I just filtered myself, by the way. If I messed that up all morning, then, then you know that that's what happened. But Mephibosheth um, was this guy named Saul's grandson. Now, I'll tell you about who Saul was. Saul was the king before David was the king. Now, Saul was the first king the nation of Israel had ever gotten. That every other nation had a king. Every other nation had, you know, this, this guy, this one, this person, this ruler, except for the nation of Israel for a while. And the nation of Israel, the God squad, said, you know, we want a king. We want a king. We want a king. We want a king. Every other, everybody else has a king, and we want a king too. And so God finally says, okay, I'm going to give you a king if you want a king. But let me just tell you, the king isn't going to go well. So he appointed this guy named Saul. Saul becomes king, starts off, has a lot of momentum, wins a bunch of battles, but eventually does some stuff that just, you know, kind of throws him out of the favor of God. And the anointing and the favor of God goes on David. And David's anointed to one day be king, but there's a long kind of intermediate process. There's a long overlap process where David is going to be king, but Saul still is king. David's going to be king and Saul still is king. David is going to be king and Saul's going to be king. Well, eventually, eventually in battle, Saul dies. And so when Saul dies, David is crowned as king. Now here's why this is significant. Because most times when anyone becomes king, if I become king and you've been been king for a long time, or if you've been king for a long time and I become king, the person who is now the current king almost always kills all of the old family's king or all the old king's families, people in their family, because he's afraid if he doesn't kill them, they might revolt, they might win the favor of the people, and they might become or challenge or rival him to be king. So it was just good business to kill everyone else who survived from the king's family. And so what happens is Saul dies, and the entire family scatters. I mean, they just take off. All the servants, all the people who used to be in his house, I mean, all of his family, all of his wives, I mean, everybody just takes off and scatters. But David had an incredible relationship with the king's son. Jonathan. Jonathan was David's best friend, and Jonathan was Saul's son. Jonathan dies at the same time Saul dies. And when David hears about this, when David becomes king, he's got a little favor going his way. He's got a little, you know, stuff heading his direction. When David should, again, he should just kind of filter through and say, hey, is there anybody left? Because if there's anybody left, I'm going to kill him. If there's anybody left, I don't want anybody else challenging my throne. I don't want anybody else throwing a revolt. I mean, the country can't handle that right now. And so David gets all of his people together, gets all of his counsel together. And he says this in verse 1 of chapter 9. He says, David said, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they, called him, <coughs> and they called him to David. And the king David said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. In other words, hey, but, but, but before you, you wonder, I was Saul's servant, but in case you're trying to kill me on this whole thing, no, 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 I'm your servant. I mean, David, you're the man, you're the king. I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him. And so Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. There is still a son of Jonathan, which would make him Saul's grandson. And he is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is at the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodeber. And what we're going to kind of find out 
is that, in fact, when all the people ran, when all the people took off, one of the things that happened is one of the servants was carrying um, this fellow Mephibosheth. And as he carried him, he dropped him, and something happened to his feet. And at this point, he couldn't walk. Now, that might sound, this might, next part might sound insensitive. But their culture not only didn't like, but completely devalued anyone with any kind of a disability. They just didn't think they had value. They just didn't think that they had worth. And I mean, we look back at that through the history and through, you know, kind of the modern era. And we're thinking, that's just so insensitive. But that's just, that, that's what they thought. That's what they felt. And so all that's left is this one guy who in their culture had no value and who had no worth on top of the fact that everyone should already be killed. So David sent and brought him from that house. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. In other words, dude's falling on his face. And it's not like, oh, I just, you know, out of respect. He's, he's, he's there for his life. He's there for his life at this point because David, I mean, he has no worth in general to their culture. He has no value in general to their culture. And on top of that, he has no value and he stands as the only man in the kingdom still of the old house. Still that resolves any kind of a resemblance that could bring up any kind of a big revolt. And so he falls on his face before David and pays homage. And so David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. Now, he's going to have a response in a second. Here's what this is. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. You've been in a situation where you thought you were just done for. You know, you, you did something that you knew you shouldn't have done. And all of a sudden, you know, maybe you were in school, maybe you're in elementary, middle school, and you get called to the principal's office, and you think you were, I mean, you, you're about to get sent home, you're going to call your parents, you know, this and that is going to happen. And then you get something that you didn't even expect. You not only don't get punished, you get this huge reward. You not only don't get what you thought you should have got, you not only get forgiven, maybe, of what you thought you should have got, but you get this gift, you get this reward that you did not deserve, that you did not, there was nothing inside of what you did that deserved what you got. And so David says, hey, hey, Mephibosheth, let me just tell you. I know you don't deserve it. And I know no one in this culture values you. I know that you are virtually worthless to everyone around you. And on top of that, you, 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 your family line and my family line are so just, just critically opposed to each other. But you don't deserve anything. But let me, let me just tell you, Mephibosheth, I'm not going to give you what you should deserve. And I'm not going to give you what you probably ought to get, which is death. And I'm not just going to forgive you and let you live. I'm going to restore to you what your grandfather which was the king who had virtually everything. And so Mephibosheth's response to him is, what is your servant that I, and what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog? So just, in other words, David, 
this doesn't even make sense. This isn't even logical. This, isn't, this, is, just, this is just silly. Come on. Me compared to you. I mean, culturally, familially. I mean, come on. There's just no way. There's just no reason. There's just, it just, that just doesn't make sense. That you would show this kind of con- kindness to me. And so David said, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant. He says, okay, Ziba, I know you were a servant of him before. And he says, all that belonged to Saul and to his grandson, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, in other words, say, hey, so I want you to take all this stuff in and I want you to, you know, you can eat some and your family can eat some and Mephibosheth can eat some if he wants to. But let me just tell you about what I'm going to do with Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king's commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's own. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house and Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, now look how he puts this at the end. He was lame in both feet. In other words... Just in case you forget, Mephibosheth doesn't deserve what he got. Mephibosheth doesn't deserve what King David offered him. But King David offered it. And so Mephibosheth took it. And for the rest of his life, he ate at the king's table. The rainy days, he didn't have to worry. Ate at the king's table. The sunny days, didn't have to worry. The days in Florida were like one day it's like 90 and the next day it's like 30. Didn't matter. Ate at the king's table. Every day, day in and day out. It was this constant reminder. And, and, and here's what's interesting. They didn't have wheelchairs back in the day. So Mephibosheth probably had to every day from one of the servants get carried to the king's table. Day in and day out, day in and day out, just carried to the table, carried to the table, carried to the table. I mean, he's just constantly being carried to this table where King David is sitting, where he can have anything he wants, he owns anything he wants, and he has everything he wants. And every single day, Mephibosheth is living in the reality that I don't deserve any of this, yet I have access to all of this. There's nothing that I've done to deserve it, yet God, through David, has given it all to me. I don't deserve it. But I get it. Now, here's the tremendous part about this. We look at that, and we could say, wow, <laughs> I wish that could happen to me. You know? It'd be awesome if, like, you know, the president came and said, Ben, you know, you got a cool church, you know. I understand you run a meat company. That's pretty neat. So why don't you come at the White House? You know, just come and hang out and, you know, whatever you want. You know, you don't have, you don't deserve it. But, you know, whenever you want Zaxby's, dude, we will get you like buckets on buckets on buckets of Zax sauce. And when we're just, you know, whatever you want, whenever you want it, you know. In fact, hey, if you ever want to, you know, you can try a, a, a Chipotle burrito and just put Zax sauce on it. You know, your head would explode if you did that. But, hey, if that's what you're willing to do, you have full access, you know. Fried chicken, go nuts, you know, whatever you want. <laughs> I just had like three things that were all fried chicken and Chipotle. 
Welcome to my life. But, I mean, if he said that to me, that, I mean, that would be phenomenal. I'd be like, yeah, man. I mean, and in fact, man, you don't have to go. I'll, I'll fly you up every day. You know, you're for breakfast. Just get up. In fact, you just go to sleep on, on, on Air Force One. You'll just wake up at the White House. It'll be fine. We'll ship you home, you know. It's whatever you want. I, I would, none, of, none of us would look at that and say, nah, I'm all right. Nah, I, I think I'm going to eat my, you know, cornflakes. Nah, I don't really want that, you know. I, you probably, I mean, maybe some more. It might get old from time to time. But for the most part. You'd say, absolutely, absolutely. Now, here's what's interesting. There's obvious parallels in this. There's obvious parallels in this of what Jesus offered and what God offered. The reality is in the story, we're not David, we're Mephibosheth. The reality is, and just to be honest, not as a condemning thing, though we are condemned for it, is that we're all sinful. And it's not like a, you're awful and you're awful and you're evil and you're the devil and you're going to hell. You know? it, it, honestly, it's just the reality that you and I have just made decisions that if God were to look at, he'd say, that's not the decision I want you to make. That's not the thing that I want you to do. We've all, in fact, you know, some of us you could claim maybe when you were little, you know, you did some stuff and you didn't really know, but I mean, let's be honest. We've all done stuff that we knew was wrong before we did it and did it anyways. We don't just make mistakes. I mean, mistakes, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I trip on this. I fall on the baptism. Oh, that's a mistake. No. I don't do that on purpose. But we've done stuff on purpose. And we're something worse than mistake makers. We're sinners. And Jesus has a conversation with the guy. In fact, if you flip over, we're going to be we're going to finish this out in some of the most well-known verses in the Bible. When Jesus is talking to a fellow, he's going to be in, we're going to be in John chapter three. And when Jesus talks to this guy, he's telling him all about this new life. <laughs> he's got some interesting questions. He's talking to this fellow named Nicodemus. In verse sixteen. This is how the scriptures read. It says, for God so loved the world. In other words, for God saw what the world was. For God saw that the world was sinful. For God saw the fact that, you know, for you and I as individuals, we'd all made mistakes. For you and I as individuals, we'd all not only just made mistakes, but we made mistakes on purpose. We've done stuff on purpose. We knew what we ought to do and we didn't do it. We knew what we ought not do and we did it anyways. And in fact, for some of us, we came up with a plan for how to do it without getting caught. For some of us, you came up with a plan, but you didn't even care about the campaign because you didn't even care if you got caught. He says, for God so loved the world that he saw all of that. He saw your sinfulness. He saw my sinfulness. He saw the fact that we had all rebelled against him. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I love this verse 17. This verse 17 kind of gets shafted because verse 16 is pretty cool. He says, For God did not send his, world in, send his son into the world to condemn the world. In other words, hey, in case you were wondering, the point of Jesus was not to make you feel like a bad person. The point of church wasn't to make you walk out of the door saying, oh, I'm so awful, I'm so terrible. He said, no, 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 no. Here's the point. You probably walked in knowing that you're not as good as you want to be. 
You probably walked in knowing that you've sinned. I'm not convincing you of that. You knew that already. You might not think you're that bad, but maybe you are a little bit worse than you are. Maybe you're pretty good, but you walked in knowing you're a sinner. And he says, okay, so God's purpose, God's eternal purpose was not to make you feel like a horrible person. But here's what it is. But in order that the world might be saved through him. The purpose wouldn't make you to feel bad about being a bad person. The purpose for was those who have come to the realization that I am a bad person, that you still get salvation. And in fact, that's about the only way. Because people who people who are well don't need a doctor. But people who realize they're sick, that's how you get better. And let me just let me just tell you. If you've ever walked into a church, and this is you know, the church people you're exempt for this for a second. If you ever walked into a church, and you've ever felt like, if they knew what I've done, if they knew who I am, if they knew my history and they knew my past, if you've ever walked into a church and thought that and thought, I feel like when I walk in the door, everyone's going to be looking at me, everyone's going to be like, who is this person? Everyone's going to see me and they're going to judge me and they're going to say, who the heck is this person? Why are they at my church? Oh my gosh, I saw them that night, I saw them that weekend, I heard about that person. If you've ever felt like everyone's looking at you, that you don't know enough, that you don't know enough Bible and everyone's going to find you out, you're kind of like this like insider and you're like, oh my gosh, what if they don't, what if they ask me like a Bible question? I don't know the answers to any Bible questions, I'll just say Jesus, you know, that's a, that's a good answer by the way. Just say Jesus, bro, and look at them like you're judging them because they don't know it's Jesus, and then they'll feel dumb. Anyways, if you've ever felt like, here, here's the amazing, let me, let me just tell you, let me just tell you, if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever thought that way, here's the reality, you are on the precipice of coming to the unbelievable realization that you, in fact, are a sinner because the fact that you felt that way when you walked in means that you knew you did something wrong before you walked in the door. And you are the perfect candidate for realizing that the entire reason Jesus came was for people like you and people like me who realize that they need a Savior. And so God saw my sin personally. And God saw your sin personally and individually. And he knew that the way that the confines of relational structures work is that he's perfect and he's holy and he's pure. And because of his holiness, because of his pureness, he can't have any kind of impurity or unholiness within him. And so he sent his son. Because he so desperately wanted a relationship. He so desperately wanted forgiveness. He so desperately wanted eternity. That he looked at our sinful state and said, you know what? I'm going to give my son to die for you. I'm going to give my son, because I know you can't pay that. I know you can't unsing yourself. I know you can't make yourself good enough. You'd like to make yourself good enough, and you're good compared to that person, or you're good compared to that person, or I'm good compared to you. You might be good compared to me. But come on, none of us are good compared to God. So I'm going to give my son to wipe away all of the debt, to wipe away all of the payment, to wipe away and bridge the gap that you couldn't wipe away and that you couldn't bridge in and of yourself. And by the way, 
I know you don't deserve it, but it's true. I know it might seem a little too good to be true, but in case you're wondering, I'm going to send my son. And he's going to come down in recordable history. And there's going to be many people who document him. And he's going to be brutally murdered on the cross. And for thousands of years before he come, I'm going to send prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet and say, he's going to come, he's going to come. Here's what he's going to do. Here's where he's going to be born. Here's what he's going to be like. Here's what, you know, on and on and on and on and on and on. And then he's going to come and he's going to fulfill and he's going to validate all of those to substantiate who he is. And he's going to be murdered on a cross to forgive you. And I know it sounds too good to be true, but it is. And I did all that for you. Now, I know this is probably dumb of me. But I kind of look at that like David and Mephibosheth. I kind of look like that, like me and the president. I mean, I know there's reasons, but why would you say no? I know you have thoughts and you have issues, but come on. If that's true, if you think that's true, why would you say no? Now, here's the other part of the sermon. How this ties in with character is that for those of you who you have placed your faith, you have placed your hope, you have placed your trust in Jesus, you and I have such an incredible tendency to get to the point that we think we don't need Jesus anymore because I've been going to church for so long that I got this. You know what men and women of incredible character and incredible integrity do? Every day, every single day, they allow themselves to be carried to the table that they don't deserve to be carried to. Every single day they wake up knowing that they are not deserving of a relationship with Jesus. Every single day they wake up knowing there's nothing that I've done and all my good deeds and all the things that I've done right and all the things that I've done well, there's nothing that I've done. And every day, Here's how we say it these days. Are reminded and preach the gospel to themselves. Every day you wake up knowing your feet are lame. Every day you wake up knowing there's no reason God should show favor to you. And every day you eat at the table of the Lord knowing that you have done nothing to be there but have full access to everything that's the king's you do that through prayer do that through community you do that through his word do that through fasting do that through a ton of different ways and a ton of different avenues so let me just ask you as a christian do you eat at the lord's table every day knowing there's no reason you should be there. You see, our attitude as Christians should be simple. Mephibosheth said it perfectly. He said, oh, sorry, I'm in John. He said, what is your servant 
that you should show, that you should show regard for a dead dog. Such as I, we, we should go to God every single day saying, God, I can't believe that this dead dog gets to hang out with you. I can't believe that this dead, I mean, come on, God, that's just, that's just silly. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to take it. But that's just silly that I get to hang out with you. That's just unbelievable that I get access to you. Not, I don't know, I got a bunch of tests and a bunch of quizzes and a bunch of you know, stuff to study for, and God, I don't know if I have time for you. Not, you know, all right, if I can maybe discipline myself enough and grind myself into enough of some kind of conformity to where I have to make myself spend time in your word and in prayer. <laughs> Attitude, are you kidding me? I, I get to spend time with you? Yeah. I mean, I got some tests I got to study for, sure. I got a job to do, yeah. I got to get up early and get to work, yeah. But I get to hang out with you? Yeah, of course I'll eat at your table. So here's my prayer. Here's my prayer. Here's my hope, my challenge, my all that. Is that for you, if you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus, you would realize that what happens before the battle is important. Community is important. And you would realize on top of that, you embracing repentance is critical. But nothing's more critical than you Every single day, spending time at the Lord's table with the attitude that, are you kidding me? I get to hang out with you? You sent your son to die for me? Yeah, I'll do that. If you do that every day, your integrity and your character your integrity and your character will be so far beyond what you think is even possible for a person like you. Because God will give you the strength, will give you the fuel to become the person, to become the man and become the woman of integrity. Come on. How dynamic again would it be? How incredible would it be if an entire church got this? If that wasn't like, when, you know, Sally in the third row and Jim Bob in the fifth row and, you know, whoever in whatever row. I mean, I mean, come on. If every person in every row, if everyone who gathered in community groups, not even our church, I mean, come on. If the whole church, the worldwide church got this, how dynamic, how different would it be? But it starts with me. And it starts with you daily going to the Lord's table. So in a second, we're going to pray. And I'm going to pray that you do. And I'm also going to pray for you. I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you're here, and God's given the invitation, he's invited you to the table, but you've never accepted the invitation I'm just going to invite you to pray along with me. I'm not going to, let me tell you why I do it this way. I'm not going to invite you to stand up, do anything goofy, you know, jump on one foot and do a handstand down the aisle. I mean, we could if we wanted to. Let me, let me just tell you why. In the Bible, when men and women authentically come 
into a relationship with Jesus, they can't not tell anybody about it. When you see people in the Bible and they come into an encounter with Jesus and they believe he is who he says he is, he heals them, he does whatever he does, it's it's silly, it happens in the Bible. He says, now shut up, don't tell anybody, shh, shh. And they say, okay, yeah, hey everybody. I mean, it just happens over and over through the scriptures. You read it for yourself. And so the reason I don't, I'm not going to make you do this or make you do that is because, man, if you come in contact with Jesus, if you realize that you've been invited to the table and you don't deserve any of it, but God's given it to you and you accept that invitation, that's something that you're absolutely stoked about. I guarantee you, if we go to the national championship game and you're a big Florida State fan and someone gave you free, you know, Air Force One, you know, tickets to get over there and you won tickets to it and you got something that you didn't deserve but maybe you entered a Dr. Pepper contest and Dr. Pepper you know hooked you up you'd be like shut up I love Dr. Pepper give me five two liters hey you guys drinking Dr. Pepper today you should drink a Dr. Pepper I want a Dr. Pepper do you want also Dr. Pepper that's what that would be like your thing you would just go on and on and on and on about Dr. Pepper because you got Dr. Pepper and it's the same thing it's the same thing it's the same thing and so I'm not going to make you do anything weird or goofy it's just come, I mean, come on If you have been invited and accepted to an invitation that you have no business being accepted or invited into, it's just natural for you to be so excited that you tell people about it. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray for all my friends, all my brothers and my sisters and myself. God, I pray that we can be the men and women of incredible faith and incredible integrity that you've called us to be. But God, I pray that we do that only through you, Jesus. I pray that we do that as we daily come to the realization that there's no reason that we're invited to the table, but you invite us anyways. There's no reason. We have not done anything good enough in and of ourselves. We are not in ourselves of enough worth, communally of enough worth, to warrant you sending your son to die for us, yet you did it anyway. And not so that we'd feel horrible about ourselves, but so that you would save us from ourselves. And so God, I pray for all my brothers and sisters who consider themselves Christians, who follow you, who have accepted you as their Lord, put their faith, hope, and their trust in you, Jesus. You would help us to continually have the perspective that we get to eat and dine with you. Though we don't deserve it, we've been invited to it. And God, I pray that you would turn us up, that you would turn us into men and women of such incredible integrity and character that the world would see you through us. And God, I pray for everyone in here who they've heard the invitation before. Maybe this is the first time when they heard it. Maybe they've heard it all their life growing up and they've been around it and they've heard pastors talk about it and they've heard friends talk about it. But they've never actually personally accepted the invitation of ultimate forgiveness, of ultimate life through the sacrifice that you made for us, Jesus. Now, if that's you, you might have been around church your entire life or you might be completely new, but you know deep down you've never personally accepted the invitation 
of ultimate forgiveness, of ultimate grace, of ultimate love poured out on the cross, and that you've been invited to spend eternity eating at the Lord's table. Though you don't deserve it. And you want it. Then I'd invite you to just pray. After me. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for paying the debt that I couldn't pay. Thank you for wiping away my sin when you died on the cross. I make you my Lord. Come and be my Savior. I give you my life. I give you my all. And I want to spend eternity dining at the table that I don't belong at. In Jesus' name, amen.